Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. Welcome to episode 28 of Middle Ground Madness, an exercise in podcast hubris. My name is Derek Ganei. My name is Isabel Arf. Derek, I want to ask you something. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the fastest growing money-making gig due to COVID-19? I, <laughs> um, I'm going to say camming. Um, so I'm going to... Am I right? This is my way of opening up. No, you're not right at all. Damn it. This is my way of opening up into... The most evil thing we've read on this podcast. Oh, we don't we don't trade much in evil. No, but this is a special kind of evil that I need to present to the world because <laughs> do you? I think you'll. I, I do. Mm. I think you'll you'll be entertained and horrified by it. Oh, goody. <laughs> um. So tech is solving all of our problems. Obviously, that's why yeah, sure. um, a gig economy company launches Uber, but for evicting people. Ooh, I don't know about this, chief. This sounds bad. A company, a company called Civil, Civil says evicting people is the fastest growing money making gig due to COVID nineteen. C I V V L. V V L. It's even got seventy five percent of the word evil in it. Yeah. Um, since COVID nineteen, many Americans fall behind in all aspects. Reads the website copy. The button below the statement is not for a GoFundMe or a petition calling for rent relief. Instead, it is the following call to action from a company called Civil. Be hired as an eviction crew. During a time of great economic and general hardship, Civil aims to be essentially Uber but for evicting people. Seizing on the pandemic-driven nosedive in unemployment and a huge uptick in number of people who can't pay their rent, Civil aims to make it easy for landlords to hire process servers and eviction agents as gig workers. That is completely addled. That is one of the... Uh, that You have to agree, that is very possibly one of the most evil things you, you have heard in a very long time. I mean... Uh, it's it's definitely there's a lot of competition don't get me wrong it's got to be like top three most just craven heartless things i've heard in months easily god holy shit this is the website copy literally thousands of process servers are needed in the coming months due due to courts being backed up in judgments that need to be served to defendants oh man it's a way of saying there's a lot of people that need to be evicted and you got to go to some houses and tell them hey Get the fuck out. I'm taking your shit. It takes a very specific kind of sociopath to take a look at the cultural landscape and be like, okay, so what? what's the supply here? Uh, tenants that owe rent. What's the demand? People to get them the fuck out of their apartments. Hmm. I wonder if this this niche is not being catered to. Let me just, let me just fucking create an LLC in hate. Um, I think that Helena Duncan, a Chicago-based paralegal who participates in housing activism, said it very well when she said, It's fucked up that there will be struggling working-class people who will be drawn to gigs like furniture hauling and process serving for a company like Civil, evicting fellow working-class people from their homes so they themselves can make rent. Yeah. It is... That sounds about right. (laughs) You ever seen the movie 31 by Rob Zombie? I have not. 
this is basically the movie 31, except instead of killing people, they're evicting them. Everyone should watch 31. It is one of my favorite movies about class conflict and interclass conflict and the ways in which different classes or the same class are set against each other and the working class is not allowed to develop class consciousness. But this is... (laughs) I thought 31 was was about the uh, fun card game I played with my grandparents. (laughs) Oh, no, it's uh, it's got uh, Doomhead and Deathhead and Sexhead in it. Ooh. Everyone's favorite things. Uh, favorite people. Richard Brake gives an amazing performance in that. The power trio of the now. So, the company at first, I'm, I'm reading more from, this is a Vice article, by the way. People can okay. look it up. Uh, I'm cutting out certain parts. The company, at first glance, appears to be some kind of Nathan for U.S. prank, seeking precarious gig jobs on vulnerable people. But Civil is connected to a larger and real gig, company, uh, gig economy company called On Call, spelled the Q, which describes itself as an app that promotes on-demand task services to non-urban communities beyond main city areas. Dog whistles. Imagine that. Hmm. Um, On Call is the developer behind other, more believable TaskRabbit-esque apps like Lawn Fixer, no E in there, Clean Quick, uh, Q-W-I-K, and Move Quick, again, Q-W-I-K. Given the fact that Civil is advertising all over the country and that On Call, though not popular, does exist, it seems as though Civil is, an, is actually an attempt to simplify the process of evicting people who cannot pay their rent. Just to ensure you all that it is a real thing and no one is just fucking with you. Um, and there are two people who have done, let's say, spokes gigs for this company. Like celebrity endorsements or whatever? Yes. Okay. Um, they, were both done on, they were both done on Cameo. Okay. Um... Can Who I do guess? you think it was? Yes, that's what I was. Uh, I want okay. you to guess which two people. Oh my god! Okay, I'm um, gonna give you a hint because I think there there's a very. If you try to guess anybody, you might get. I think you're gonna be in a very wrong direction. So I will say, neither of them are white. Neither of them are white. Okay, and uh, um, I'm going to go with. Oh boy, how about these for polls? Let's go with D.L. Hughley and William Hung. Wow. Okay, great polls. I love them. <laughs> um, but they're actually iced tea and Omarosa. Interesting. I expect better from iced tea. Yeah, so do I. Um, to be fair, iced tea was in general promoting the larger brand of On Call. Um, so he wasn't saying, hey, you can evict people for money. He was saying it's Uber, but for side hustles, which is still not great. Mm. I still think iced tea shouldn't be doing that. And I think, hold on, let's, I'm going to Google how much iced tea costs on Cameo. Ice, Cameo, iced tea. I, 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 I think he could charge low three figures. Um, what do you get? What's your guess? I'm going to say 250 bucks for a Cameo from iced tea. 250? Yeah. He's got 350. Ah, okay. All right. I think that's uh, like, I would, if I needed a Cameo from iced tea, I'd pay 350 bucks for it. All right. I feel like that's worthwhile. <laughs> um, Omarosa, oh, boy. Uh, what the fuck is else is Omarosa doing? Because like she got kicked out of like the Trump White House, right? She mm-hmm. was in there for a little bit. Yep. Man, this whole society is it's something fucking deranged and impossible to fix. Um. So Omarosa is probably fifty. Uh, this is so many guessing games going on. Omar, I hope everyone everyone is playing along at home, <laughs> guessing how long Omar, how old, not how long she is. Um, she's 46. You were close. No, I meant how much she charges for a cameo. Oh, copy, copy, copy. Let's, let's check that. Omarosa, um... I don't know how old Omarosa is. Cameo. Uh, she's 46, I just told you. Oh, okay. <laughs> how much did you guess? 50 bucks. Derek, you're spot on. 
Yeah, that's right. Te- technically, it's forty nine dollars, but still. Okay. Um, she has she has ninety four reviews for her um cameos. Her average rating is four point seven stars, so doing great. Uh, Amorosa is doing. Oh boy. Um, this conversation is October fourth, twenty twenty. Um, okay. Uh, there was a review by Emily on October fourth that said Omarosa went above and beyond. I'm wow. so happy with this birthday message she made for my friend. It felt personal and full of love. How so, would you feel if someone got you a birthday cameo from Omarosa? I, that depends. That depends on my feelings about Omarosa. Uh, like, I mean, pers- like I, I would not be particularly happy with it. Like, <laughs> even in a, in like an ironic <laughs> shit post sense. God, I'd be like, you can get better people to shit post for me. Like, this is not the best way to do this but if i was i don't know like a black conservative that's all i can think of like i feel like maybe that's what you're trying to get at but even then like don't you want it from uh that one sheriff that sucks you're gonna have to be more specific david clark yeah david clark <laughs> uh, one, david clark the, sh- the shitty sheriff the one i mean the one, one, of, with, one of many the one the one with the fake valor yes yes the stolen valor um sheriff okay it's oh, a good wrestling name I like the gimmick of uh, the Stolen Valor Sheriff. Stealing Valor is good and just, and it is something I support. And it's one of those things that, like, I... It's like, dog, my, clearly my favorite, I am not in the military. <laughs> it's like, I don't my, give a shit. <laughs> my, my favorite genre of, uh, what do you call it? Of liberal outrage is liberals being outraged at things that I think are good. <laughs> um, like, for example, there was a little bit where... The whole thing was like you have you have to dislike Trump because he's a traitor, and I was like, bruh, like that's the only cool thing he's done. If that's true, like that is like being a traitor is awesome. That is the one thing that I'm awesome with. Like you don't have to bring that to me. You can bring plenty of other stuff. It's like I'm not going to shit on the guy because he's an asset. Yes, and like I will not shit on someone for stealing valor. That is a cool and good thing to do, and I support it. But we don't usually just talk about stealing valor on this podcast i believe it's the first time it's come up on the show but yes usually we 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 tend to deal in the field of motion pictures or uh, movies as they call them uh so the gimmick of this entire podcast regardless of what the last 15 minutes have told you uh is we have a big old single elimination bracket and inside the bracket are the movies uh, constituting the um or constituting that's the word i'm looking for uh, the Internet Movie Database Top 250 Movies of All Time, circa August 2018, plus six other ones that were bubbling under to make a good, even 256 entry bracket. And uh, this episode finds us, as every other episode beforehand, and every episode in the future, on our quixotic quest to find the best movie of all time, asterisk. So, um... And we're doing great. We're, we're doing, doing great. So, well. so far, so good. Uh, we're really just just chugging along. Yeah, we're we're we definitely uh, didn't take a six month break that was immediately after another like four month break. I mean, the world's weird out there. It is weird out there. Um, I mean, like if like it, I listen to a lot of podcasts where the host's job is just podcasting, so uh-huh. they're do they're doing fine. Yes, they're doing great. But There's, we both work if, for a living. <laughs> yeah. If you were an actual, like, I mean, not to say that podcasting is not a job that many proletariats do. Um, there are plenty of people who do not make that much money podcasting or people that make no money like us. Yeah. But it if is you still, think we made money off of this, guess again. It is still a job that allows you to basically just sit in your house, um, which is great. I'm very happy for them. I wish I could do the same thing. 
Uh, but luckily, as we all know, as soon as um, Joe Biden, the great progressive hope, is elected, everything will go back to normal. <laughs> and we never have to pay attention to politics again, according to Pete Buttigieg. Are we still talking about Mayor Pete? Unfortunately, because liberals are still trying to make him happen. Man, you got to get on my internet where we don't, where the only people talking about Pete Buttigieg is people talking about how people are still talking about Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> you, you forget that most of my time spent on the internet is just giving myself further brainworms. <laughs> Yeah, we don't get the same internet. Yeah. God, I feel I feel bad. Um, what do you call it? Constantly. <laughs> I feel bad constantly shitting on libs on this podcast because, like, my father listens to this podcast and my father would call himself a liberal. I would argue that he's not actually. And he just, I, that's a whole different thing that I would have to get into with him. But regardless. I'm like, pretty sure that, like, that we... And a lot of other people use this very this very simple word in very, very different ways. Yes. Especially <laughs> and like and, and it's entirely context dependent. Yes. Um here here's a bad post I just posted the other day on Tumblr. Um Oh right, you're still res- on Tumblr. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm still on Tumblr. It's great. Um and although I'm post most of it is me posting and most of my popular Tumblr posts are me posting things from Twitter. <laughs> um, just just checking in with people, being like, "Hey, just you know, the rest of the world, they're not doing great either." Um, there was it was this was a, a reply that uh, this was in response yes. to the news that Joe Biden is probably going to put John Kasich in a high ranking position in his uh, office. Is, and uh, John Kasich is the guy that was Kerry's running mate. No. I don't believe that's correct. He was a former governor of Ohio. He ran for um, president, president oh, in 2016. Right. Okay, I think that's what it was. I think I just remember. I'm confusing him with Kim Kaine. I'm sorry. Yes. Um, and he is a quote-unquote never-Trump Republican, so therefore libs love him, even though he created one of the harshest abortion laws in like any state in the union. Ohio is a weird state. Ohio's a weird fucking state. I don't look, I don't want to get into all the shitty things. John Kasich, Kasich bad guy. Mostly because I'd have to like actually Google things and remember exactly what I'm thinking of. Thinks Edward Snowden is a traitor, you know, all that all that good business. He calls for mm. a fucking balanced budget, like every fucking cup. Yo, I got the solution. I got I got the, the solution here. Anyone budget. who tells you that a balanced budget is important is they are a cuck. There's no other word for them. And and you should not believe them because they're either lying like Republicans or they are completely hoodwinked into thinking that it is something that matters like the fucking Democrats. Yo, invent money. Yeah. it's like Get the fucking no offense, mint on the it's horn. It's not hard. And like there's plenty of arguments, I'm sure. I mean, and I'm, I shouldn't say I'm sure because I've, I've heard them against doing that. Da, da, da. And that may be true if you are, for example, Zimbabwe. Sure. Um, which had a terrible inflation problem, and certainly for them, it would have not been a good idea to just print more money, which it wasn't a good idea. That was borne out. That but when you're out the United States of America, you can kind of just do it, and it doesn't actually matter. Or here's the other thing. You can just spend more money. No one's actually going to come collect your debt. No one cares because they know if they like try to freeze you out and try to like collect that debt, you just go, whoops, we can't pay it. I guess you don't get any money. It's the classic thing of like, if um, uh, you owe someone $100, that's your problem. If you owe them a million dollars, that's their problem. Oh, what's this coming down the, coming down the hallway? It's Mr. Sanctions. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> so this, this, this tweet was in response to that. Um, 
The country will be stronger if the cabinet is bipartisan, leaning left. I feel like one-fifth Republican, two-fifths Democratic moderates, and two-fifths Democratic progressives would be a strong balance. Why does anyone think this is the most deranged brainworms that being like that liberalism has given anybody? This idea that fucking bipartisanism is important and is like morally worthwhile by itself. I think I I do not understand it. I think it just betrays a lack of imagination. I mean, I think it betrays the fact that you don't have an ideology and you don't actually care about things. Like, if you, it, let's say you actually cared about, this is getting into politics podcast, I don't care, I'll cut this out or whatever. Um, or I'll put, or keep it in. If you're a lib listening to this podcast, congratulations, I'm going to tell you why bipartisanism is dumb. Uh, <laughs> like, let's say you care about Medicare for All, which I do, personally. Even if you don't, just take it as an example. Let's say you care about Medicare for All, and you want to get that passed. And you believe it's the moral and correct thing to do. Why and why would it, be, would it be morally justified to have people in the government who are purposefully pushing back against the thing you believe to be moral and correct? What is, I do not understand at all what the purpose of that is. The argument is always, oh, then you get opinions from different sides and it all comes together. And it's, it's compromise. That's the great American union and all that kind of bullshit. Of course, the problem is that it's that's assuming a couple different things. It's assuming that Republicans are going to compromise on anything, which they're not. And in fact, it's just the Democrats who will compromise before they even give their initial offer. It's the dumbest shit. Um, and it was because Democrats think that compromise is an inherently moral thing to do no matter what you're compromising on. And here's the thing. A lot of different progressives have different ideas on how Medicare for all should be constituted and should be actually executed. It's not like it's one monolithic idea. And it's not like all of progressive and leftist politics is the exact same idea. So you'd still be getting different opinions. It's just that you're pushing out the people who believe that certain people don't deserve to live anymore. Like, it doesn't seem that hard to me. But I guess when your entire idea is that compromise is morally justified in itself and the system is your entire ideology, that's all you got. So, Like, take it from me who lives in a country with nationalized healthcare. It's... Very difficult to get anyone to agree on everything, and it is very much still imperfect. But so even if you a, want to fetishize this idea of moving towards a more perfect union, you can still have that, even if you don't have Republicans in the White House or in any position of power ever. Uh, Anyways, um, that's my opinions on the budget and uh, bipartisanism and uh, Uber, but for you know getting people evicted. Oh boy. Um, here's another great tweet. I'm going to stop after this one. I promise <laughs> I, I can just keep scrolling. Um, I think I might have posted this one in in the um, in the House Lights chat, but I'm so in love with it. I think Xi Jinping, did I get that right? Yeah, Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping, thank you, um, should watch Hamilton. That would be a good starting oh point to figure him to help him figure out how his China lost nearly every friend it had in Washington. One out of six. So that was a threat. <laughs> one out of six? One out of six, there are five more tweets after that about why you should watch Hamilton. And that's by Michael Schumann, who wrote a book on China. <sighs> the world is a nightmare, and it's going to keep getting worse, unfortunately. Um, but some things like movies are okay occasionally. Occasionally. not often. I mean, we've um, got We're going to talk some... about some of those okay movies today, right? Yeah, we've got some heavy fucking hitters today. We got to get into this. I already said that like I don't have a lot of time to record this one and I keep oh, diverting boy. it and bullshitting it. So let's just hey, a fistful of dollars is what we're talking about, right? Uh sort of, in a manner of speaking. We're talking about um 
the person who Clint Eastwood stole Valor from. The person? Um, Mufune. Right, exactly. Um, I'm oh. claiming that Clint Eastwood stole Valor from Tashira Mufune. That was my callback joke that didn't work because I phrased it very badly. Please, would, Derek, just get would, me out of this. Would, just talk about the th- stuff. It, it, would, it would be more accurate to say that Sergio Leone stole Valor from Akira Kurosawa, but whatever. So we've got two matchups today, as we usually do, uh, and they are as follows. So we've got the 114 seed Yojimbo versus the 143 seed The Seventh Seal, and the 15 seed Lord of the Rings The Two Towers versus the 242 seed Before Sunset. So, uh, yeah, let's just do the first one of these. That's certainly how we do it. I like it. <laughs> first things first. Uh, so, our first matchup, the 114 seed Yojimbo, uh, released in 1961, uh, directed by Akira Kurosawa, written by uh, Akira Kurosawa, Ryuzo Kishishi- uh, Kikushima, and Hideo Oguni, uh, starring the great Toshiro Mufune. Tatsuya, Naka, uh, Tatsuya Nakadai, Yoko Tsukasa, God, I should have read these beforehand. Yoko Tsukasa, Isuzu Yamada, and uh, Takashi Shimura. Um, not a whole lot of like box office deets on this because this didn't really. Let, let's just say, as I usually do, that this movie has a very. It cost two and a half million dollars about in 1961 bucks and has a very long cultural tale. Mm-hmm. And if you ever watch this movie and re- and tell yourself, hmm, I feel like I've seen this before, ask yourself if you've ever seen Sergio Leone, uh, Leone's A Fistful of Dollars. We'll get to that. Versus the 143 seed, The Seventh Seal, released in 1957, uh, written and directed by Inmar Bergman, based on a play whose title I'm not going to try to pronounce because it is in Swedish, by Igmar Bergman. Uh, it stars uh, Gunnar Bjornstrand, Bengt Ekerot, Nils Pop. I hope that I hope it's Pop. Uh, Max von Sydow and BB Anderson. Uh, this movie cost a cool 150 grand to make. Uh, I don't really have much box office details. Um, but again, this is a movie that has a uh, a long cultural tale. So a couple of this is kind of an interesting uh, match. Like titans of world cinema, essentially. Titans two, of world cinema. Two of cinema. the most famous directors of all time. Um, That's two right. Two most acclaimed directors of all time. And two of the I, most prolific, I, I would, too. I was, yeah, and I, I would say the most acclaimed of their films. I think that's true for Bergman here, for The Seventh Seal. That is like the archetypal Bergman film. I don't think it's yep. necessarily true for Yojimbo, but it's, it's darn close up there. I think uh, I think if you were to rattle off, if you were to do this family feud style, I think Seven Samurai is number one, yes. and Ron is number two. But Yojimbo three or four, I, I would suspect that's switching with Rashomon. Yeah, switching with Rashomon exactly. So these are both not not to not to uh, spoil the bit, but these are pretty much both masterpieces. <laughs> This yes, is what I, this is one I 100% of the most agree. This is going to be a rough parents. one. So let's talk a little bit about a little movie called Yo Jimbo. So uh, I'm going to uh, recycle a phrase that I that I uh, said on Letterbox is that I, I said when I rewatched Seven Samurai for this very show that it's not the first action movie, but it feels like the first action movie because a lot of sort of modern action cinema's DNA is kind of in there. I mean. You could basically draw a straight line from that to Magnificent Seven to, like, everything else. Yes. Yojimbo is basically the first spaghetti western because it is basically just a fistful of dollars. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. There's uh, nothing more to say than that. Sergio Leone fucking just nicked this whole fucking thing wholesale and transplanted it from uh, from sort of uh, samurai era Japan, Ronin era Japan. To remember when Pokemon did a Yojimbo riff? Um, no. When was that? Oh gosh, um, it was in I believe the first anime series. I'm gonna Google this real quick, um, because I'm pretty sure I'm remembering correctly, but um, I remember that it was between two different Pokemon gyms. I want to say mm-hmm. one of whom, like their main their main dude was Scyther, and the other uh, I want to say the other one was Pinsir, because that would make sense because they were counterparts in the games. But I also feel like I was frustrated by it as a child, so it probably wasn't Pinsir. But um, Pokemon Yojimbo. There we go. Auto-completed, so I gotta be right. Um, here we go. So I'm gonna read the plot. Uh, sh- showdown at Dark City is what it's called. Dark City. Um, Ash and his friends arrive in Dark City, which appears to be a ghost town, much to Brock's dismay. They are even more curious to see a parent hurting their child off for fear of Pokemon trainers. Um, they are hit by a rock from a nearby building. When Ash tells Pikachu to, 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 to retaliate using Thunderbolt, they hit three kids on the rooftop. When they go to apologize them, however, they get the cold shoulder. Um, at a restaurant while eating lunch. Uh, oh, this is this is this is a ridiculously detailed this, plot synopsis. I'm trying to skip bit. through it, but like, oh my god! Uh, like, this is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven pretty long paragraphs about Holy shit. this. Not even thirty minutes of television, but um, uh, yes, it looks Scyther and Electabuzz. That's what happens. Um, Electabuzz. is a gang war between Yas's gym and Kaz's gym, uh, and it is resolved at a certain point eventually. And Ash asks whether the two leaders have learned their de- lesson and resolved their differences. The two leaders finally agree to team up and deal with Ash. <laughs> so it's a slightly <laughs> different ending there. It's like if, if the two leaders in this movie were like, hey, fuck yo, Jimbo, let's just kill that guy. <laughs> um, and then Rufus Sewell shows up and says, I didn't kill her. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, that is something I remembered out of my childhood. Uh, continue, please. All right. So that's that was... kind of the Chirmafune of like Pokemon when you think about it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, maybe. D- speaking of Tashiramafune. <laughs> um, the baddest is there a motherfucker more... to ever live? Is there a more charismatic screen presence than Tashiro Mafune? I feel like we had this exact same discussion when we talked about the Seven Seal because he Seven Samurai. Th- thank you, thank you. We're Seven gonna Samurai. talk about Seven uh, Seventh uh, Seal in a second. Um because he, even in that cast of incredibly outstanding actors, he so clearly sticks out as like, this is the guy. This is this is who we're centering around because he is drawing every part of this towards him in the best way possible. And in this movie, he is the central character, so that makes sense. But he's also so overpoweringly and overwhelmingly charismatic. The moment that I, I knew I was in love with this movie is there's a segment early on where... One of the rival businessmen. Have we set up the plot? I forget. We haven't. Okay. So, a nameless Ronin, who is... I, I'm going to call him Yojimbo, because that's, that's the name of the movie. That is it not his name. bodyguard. He, yes. He has no actual name in the thing. Um, when he's asked he's to the give man a name, with no name, you might say. Yes. Um, when he's asked to give him a name, doesn't he, like, say the... Um, the wind in the mulberry field or something like that? Yeah, Either something way. like that. Either way. Um, but he enters a town, and there was a uh, feud going on between two rival businessmen. And it's basically destroyed the entire town. And he is going to play them off each other and try to get as much as he can out of that. And his own motivations are always a little bit um, 
mysterious. You're never sure whether he's just trying to get the money or whether he actually cares about making the situation better. Um, relatively early on, when he goes to see one of the businessmen, uh, he gets an offer for like, hey, here's how much we'll pay you. And he's like, cool, sounds good. And then that businessman's wife walks into the room and is like, hey, can I talk to you? in husband out in this other room for a second and the husband's like hey if you want chill in here i just gotta go talk to my wife and of course yojimbo like secretly follows them and sits outside the door and listens in on the conversation and this is also a uh, brothel that, that he's in that's the business as he's walking around all of the women in the brothel are following him more or less and are looking in on him from another room and he sees like them. they don't know how to deal with this guy yes and he's listening in and he hears that the plan is to kill him and take all the money that they just gave him back. So they don't actually have to pay him after they win this gang war. And to Mufune, like basically rolls his eyes and sticks his tongue out and uh, looks at the um, sex workers, basically like these motherfuckers think they can do this ridiculous. And it is such a great moment that I absolutely adored. Um, and that was kind of my way in to be like, okay, yeah, this movie is perfect it is wonderful i have no problems with it because i just get to follow around to shirmafune for like two hours yeah i mean that that was my in praise of him as an actor thing i apologize if it was a little long-winded but hey no i mean that's there uh, he, he he has a pull he has he has kind of an intensity and it's an intensity that's it's it it's, it's not like it's it's not only is it effortless but feels like it could come out of nowhere. Yes. It comes in bursts. And I don't I don't see a ton of actors do that. I don't see a ton of actors even try to do that, mostly because there's not really an opportunity for it. And it's just it's a it's just a great it's just a great action movie. We don't talk of oh, of course we talk about Akira Kurosawa as like this master filmmaker, right? But we don't talk about him that much as like an action filmmaker. And and an entertainer. Lot, and an entertainer. There's the things that I, anyway, praise and enjoy about action cinema, or the action cinema that I like, anyway, is like not entirely dissimilar in a lot of the Akira Kurosawa action movies. There's one scene in particular that uh, is great, where it's the two rival gangs. It's 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 one one wide shot, and it's the two gangs kind of like tentatively approaching each other, and they're just like rattling sticks, basically. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, Toshiro Mifune is on like a perch, just kind of watching this go down. And it's like he like he knows exactly where the camera needs to be. And it's like it's great. It's it's hilarious and it's suspenseful. And I don't know. The greats make it look so easy. And the I will say this, and this uh, this is like my fourth or fifth time watching this movie. What stood out this time for me was the set of the town. And how well it was like used, yeah, and, and and realized where it feels like you get an idea of the layout of that town very quick. Yes, it and, feels so desolate. Yes, and it is such a good feel and emotional vibe to set up the actual point of the story and the way the story is going to unfold. And like talking about like every interior as well is so expertly like placed everything is exactly where it needs to be, and it feels like it is not cluttered. It is exactly how it should be. Um, there's that scene later on that's great where um, Yojimbo is being carried off in essentially a coffin uh, to pretend he's dead. 
Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. he gets he gets dropped in the middle of the street as the f- the finale of the conflict is taking place. Let's say you just get this wonderful shot of the desolation of the town and this burning house um, and the people running all around it. It's I don't know how else to like. I I feel like I'm running out of words because everything's gonna be cliche. Like oh, it is perfect. It is the exact way it should be. You can't see a single thing that's actually out of place. I guess instead the thing that I'd say is that. Much like the next film we'll talk about, Seven Seal, the thing that I am most enjoy in revisiting movies like this is that when you say, oh, I got to watch this like 1960s black and white, like foreign film, your mind is like, this is going to be homework. And both this and in my opinion, The Seventh Seal are entertaining the entire way through. They're funny. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. are like very well shot, but not in a way that is necessarily obtuse. It is, they are just fun and entertaining films that also have this extra weight to them because they are made by incredibly good filmmakers. I love the kind of subversion of gun as prop in this movie. And that, that character in general is wonderful. And also the character of the, uh, the boar is what I believe he's called. Uh, yeah. So uh, this movie is a masterpiece. And so is this other one we're going to talk about. Uh, the Seventh Seal, which on paper... Should be the middle brow sort of golden era of foreign film movie there is. It's Bergman. It's like sort of in the pocket Bergman. It's his most popular movie, I think. Um, And yet, and yet, it's got this... It's got like it is about sort of the the as as uh, many Bergman films are about the, uh, the the crushing silence of God. Yes, but just like just like Winter got... Light we talked about previously. <laughs> but it's got this lightness about it. It's got this sort of deft touch, which and I said this on Twitter. But thank you, Igmar Bergman, for making masterpieces that are ninety minutes long. Yeah, one hundred percent. This is always going to be something that is going to be in Bergman's favor. Rarely goes over an hour and a half. Yes. Uh, this one included. Um, so yeah, so these are movies. So movies about the crushing silence of God. But this one has this sort of yeah, a, a lightness of touch that like I've banked a couple of Bergman movies now. This seems not out of character, but I appreciate that he has this in his arsenal. I think this is in um, in some ways in the. Uh, wild strawberries vein where there's mm-hmm. a lightness to it and there's an uh a jovialness that you don't expect very from jovial. an incredibly heavy movie where literally one of the main characters is death old sourpuss bergman also by the way i almost laughed uh, a minute ago because i was i googled seven seal quotes because there was a specific one i was looking for and the first quote that showed up just said death i am death and what an <laughs> iconic sure? quote from death love it love whoever made that such a popular one in there but yeah like like you don't when i was remembering this film i didn't remember the entire subplot with the actor who runs off with the guy's wife which yeah, has some heavy <laughs> moments especially for um the traveling uh, the other traveling actors the wife and husband um but it's also the way it ends is ridiculous goofball like almost physical comedy which is commented on by um it would be Gunnar Bjornstrand right yes uh who plays um the um Jons yeah the uh, the the squire yes the squire to uh Max von Sydow's Antonius Block the the noble yes. knight the noble knight yes 
who is um, probably not as noble as uh, people would like to believe about him. <laughs> about about the knight or about Max von Sydow? Um, about about the knight. I have no strong opinions about Max von Sydow besides the fact he's a good actor. I hope he's not good problematic because I don't know anything about that. Well, he he can't be problematic anymore because he's dead. I mean, you know, like you could say that's that, how that like, works, right? Elizabeth Bathory was problematic. Sure. <laughs> I'm gonna cancel what? Elizabeth Bathory. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I obviously I'm very much a Bergman, like a huge Bergman fan. Winter Light is like one of my like second or third favorite film of all time. Cries and Whispers is one of the films I've like wept at the most. Persona I think is a perfect film, like maybe the best film about filmmaking. I think The Seventh Seal is incredible. I think Wild Strawberries is the worst one I've seen, and it's very, very, very good. So I want to get your view before I go off on my shit about this movie. Uh, On your shit? Okay. Uh, What's my view on this? Um, The first time I saw this movie, I was... uh, I was... um, was my first year of... uh, uh, was um, my first year of my BA. And I was like, well, I, I've made it this far in my in my journey into cinema without seeing The Seventh Seal, so I might as well fucking watch it. And I was like, then as now, I was struck by how fucking funny it was because, you know, the the repu- the baggage that Ingmar Bergman comes with is that he's like this sort of, you know, the, a sourpuss. pious sourpuss. Um, and I mean, in some ways that's true, but I mean, this is like a very funny, like sort of darkly comic, but also just sometimes pratfally movie. I think that um I think that the strength of this film is just it has well first of all it's gorgeous mm-hmm. second of all it's short yes. and th- third I think that I think this has some of the best Bergman writing just in terms of just yes. how 100% 100% I think this is one of the better Bergman scripts and upon this rewatch uh, obviously the first time you watch, it's uh, Max von Sydow and uh, Gunnar, was it Bjornstrom? Uh, yes. Uh, this time around, uh, my uh, my wandering eye uh, latched on to, what's his name? What's his name? Uh, the the Nils Pup character. Yof. The uh, Yof, who is uh, uh, an acrobat, a tumbler, and, uh, you know, an artist, a performer. And who... Uh, and a bit of a fool. A bit of a fool. And I was kind of drawn to like, like, weirdly, this movie is, is of two. I really like the sort of duality in this movie between sort of, you know, the specter of death follows us always. And, um, uh, and also li- life is, uh, life and existence and the universe is this wonderful thing. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the best things about every Bergman film. Um, but there's like very rarely in the Bergman films, at least that I've seen, is there the, this this avatar of this sort of naivete toward maybe naivete this uh, an avatar for this sort of you know um, for this sort of wonder at at the universe. Um, a, a characters who actually enjoy being alive. That's right, and um, I don't know. This time around, that's kind of what I zoned in on. But yeah, I think the big strength of this movie is the writing. I appreciated that Yof did his own little Das Macabre in the in the middle of the movie, when he's being egged on by, uh, uh, by well not egged on by but like threatened by the uh, the uh, the uh, the um, in patrons. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, a terrifying scene. Yeah, it's it, it's it's rough stuff, and I it's it's ninety minutes. It's thematically concise. The writing's awesome. I mean, there's nothing wrong with this movie. It's fucking perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um. And. It's time for me to get on my shit a little bit. 
So a lot of this will be kind of similar to things I said about Winter Light. I hope to add a couple new wrinkles to that, ideally. But there's three scenes in particular I want to, like, focus in on. Number one is the confession scene, which I think is very possibly Bergman's best written scene ever. I think it's incredible. I think it's it is is a perfect scene. There's a reason it is pulled from so much. Um, but I also think that unlike some of Bergman's religious writing, which can be difficult to grasp if you are not of that persuasion, let's say, I happen mm-hmm. to be. So like something like Winter Light, for example, is easy to grasp for me, but I understand that a lot of the language, especially when um what do you call it? When Gunnar Bjornstrand as the priest in that talks can be a little abstract and a little bit hard to concretely understand. But I think one of the best, you know, monologues that happens in the film or happens in Bergman is during that confessional scene, which is between Block uh, and the priest that he doesn't know his death yet. And he says, is it so awfully unthinkable to conceive of God with one's senses? Why should he conceal himself in a fog of half-spoken promises and unseen miracles? How are we to believe the believers when we don't believe ourselves? What will become of us who want to believe but cannot? And what of those who neither will nor can believe? Why can I not kill God within me? Why does he go on living within me in a painful, humiliating way, though I curse him and want to tear him out of my heart? Why does he remain a treacherous reality of which I cannot rid myself? And... That's some Terrence Malick shit. Yeah, what what a great summation of that inherent problem, like that silence, that inability to know, and that frustration where you're there's a it's this eternal like conflict within religion and dis between religion and disbelief, which is that someone who wants answers is not going to be able to believe because they are saying i want to know why this is i want to know the reasons i want proof i want hey show this to me just for a moment show me the thing and you see that later on when block is trying to look into the eyes of the woman who is theoretically possessed um which i think is also a great scene but he doesn't he doesn't see what he wants to no all he sees is fear that is such an articulate way to phrase this this conflict that can be simplified and can be boiled down in incredibly unhelpful ways i think for example, the new atheists are people who boil it down to incredibly unhelpful ways. Um, people like you know Hitchens and Dawkins and that's the bad faith way of doing it. Yes, that's the bad faith way of doing it. Whereas Bergman a hundred percent understands the appeal of God and wants. To, I think he's he's that person who wants to believe but cannot, and he's so frustrated by that where he's like, I want this thing because I can tell this what this thing matters to other people, and I want it to matter for me in the same way but I just can't do it. So why can't I just get rid of this desire? And it reminds me a lot of uh, one of my favorite musicians, uh, David Berman. Uh, not David Berman, I apologize. David Bazan. David Berman is a different person. Um, David Bazan. David Bazan. Um, are from, you familiar with Pedro the Lion? I was going to say from Japan, but that's someone else. <laughs> that is definitely a different person. Um, I, I'm, familiar, I'm, I'm familiar by name with Pedro the Lion. Pedro the Lion and David Bazan are kind of, if, if you are an ex-Christian who was once very, very involved with the church and are no longer, then David Bazan and Pedro the Lion are going to be your favorite bands because they express this feeling so well in this falling out with God um, because Pedro the Lion specifically made probably what is my favorite song about 
why believing matters. Um, I think it's even called like lullaby or something along those lines. Um, I'm going to quote some lyrics because it's important to me. I apologize for everyone. This is insufferable, but I have to get a point across. This is going to be an Isabel episode. This is, uh, well, this one thing is going to be an Isabel episode. And then maybe there's a revelation later on with the next movie. Who knows? Oh. But um, the chorus of this song that I like generally find moving and like will cry every time I hear it is um, like the entire verses are about his failures and the fact that he can't seem to ever do this thing that he wants to do and be a good person. And he always feels like he's falling down. And the chorus of it is from the point of view of God. It's like God speaking. And God says, rest in me, little David, and uh, dry all your tears. You can lay down your armor and have no fear because I'm always here when you're tired of running and I'm all the strength that you need, which is the exact thing you want in religion. It's the exact thing I found so powerful in religion and in God. It was that sense of here's this place I can go where I can drop my armor and just be with a presence that is beyond me and will keep me safe forever. And then um, David Bazan had an evolution in faith, let's say, and he um, wrote an incredibly good album that unless you are an ex-Christian, you will probably not like very much uh, called Curse Your Branches. And it's, it's, it's been described as, and the chorus for that song is really good too. Um, it is all fallen leaves should curse their branches for not letting them decide where they should fall or not letting them refuse to fall at all which is obviously a metaphor, if you can imagine that. <laughs> but um, what do you call it? So in Curse Your Branches, the final, like it has been described as a breakup album with God, which is a wonderful oh, pitch. And the final song on the album is called In Stitches. And I'm also going to quote from that because I think it is so much like the quote I just read from The Seventh Seal. And I'm going to read the whole thing. I apologize, everybody. I know that reading lyrics is so boring to listen to. But I, if I don't it's not do boring it, for, it's not boring for listeners who are 16 years old. God. Um, it's cool. Don't worry about it. This is Whatever's in the show is in the show. Let's do it. Okay. I'm going to self-censor and cut some of this out. So uh, the second verse. That doesn't sound like you at all. <laughs> starts with, I might as well admit it like I even have a choice. The crew have killed the captain, but they still can hear his voice. A shadow on the water, yeah, a whisper a line, in the like wind, that. on long walks with my daughter, who is lately full of questions about you. Which, I th- I love that line. The crew have killed the captain, but they still can hear his voice. And that is that's the exact, really good. Yeah, that's the exact thing that the Seventh Seal is talking about. Imagine that. And it is that feeling that exists in the person who once believed but no longer can that you feel in block uh, in in the Seventh Seal, and you feel in Garner Brunstrand's other role um, in Winter Light, and that you feel running throughout Bergman's filmography. That was a long discussion of one scene. I apologize. Next scene that I want to talk about, um, and this is going to end happily, I promise. The next scene I want to talk (laughs) about is um, the final scene with the group gathered together in Block's castle, essentially. How do you face death? Yes. Uh, And everyone there, um, Block and Jans and a mute girl that they pick up along the way. And there's actually like a really good scene, I think, where... If you're watching this film for the first time, Jan seems like almost a good guy. And he is in certain ways. But then he also tells this mute woman, hey, I just saved you. And I could have raped you if I wanted to. So you got to come with me and you're my wife now. And it's like, oof, Jan's boy, howdy. That's not how you treat people. Um, 
but it's uh, those three people and uh, Block's wife. And I believe that's it with that group. I might be missing there's one like, person. There's like, yeah, there's like seven of them. Yes. Oh, it is. Uh, yeah. Either way. Uh, oh, it's it's the husband and wife that was broken up by the actors for a moment. And then right, 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 right. And the final moments of the film, or not the film, of that of their arc, let's say, the second to last scene in the film, they know someone's at the door and it opens. You don't see who it is, but you know it's God. Or not, not a God, but death, rather. It is the end. And uh, everyone approaches it in their own way. Some are silent. Some have like something small to say. And one of them just goes on and on with this bullshit story. Yes. Um, that is Jan's. And Block is like, have mercy on us. And Karen, who's his wife, just says, quiet. And then Jan's, funny enough, says, I will be quiet, but under protest. Because <laughs> he's the one who can't stop talking. And then the girl, this mute girl at the very end, she has this amazing close-up shot that's rightfully iconic um and she just says it is finished she looks ecstatic yes she looks completely ecstatic at the prospect this is what's going to happen i'm going to die now and what a beautiful and troubling image (laughs) um in my opinion i believe it is like an image that i find like such comfort and beauty within and find like ecstatically awesome in the sense of not in like oh that's rad bro but in this in like the religious sense an awesome, <laughs> in, se- awesome. in the sense of awe yes um but it's also frightening because as the film occasionally does it reminds you that life is suffering and you cannot escape death and that maybe by the end of your life you will greet it as if you wanted it the entire time because you have no way of going on living yeah what else are you gonna do yes Everyone's on the clock, baby! <laughs> and then, to go back to your point, this is the happy ending of this long, overlong segment about the Seventh Seal, probably half of which I'm cutting because I'm embarrassed by. But You're not embarrassed by any of this shit. You're going to oh, leave it all in. I'm very embarrassed by parts of this. It was very corny. But um, to go back to that sense of there is still goodness in this world, there's still a life worth living, even if it is misery and death that is its core nature. And I think this is something that, in general, Bergman does incredibly well. Like, for example, um, Cries and Whispers. Have you seen that? No, I have not. Copy. Um, Cries and Whispers is maybe his most cutting and meanest film. There are oh, there are some things that happen in that film. I'm not going to get into them, especially because some of them would require a content warning. But it is oh, boy. It's fucking rough. It is really difficult to watch. Um, it also includes one of the most painful lines in Bergman, and this one I will slightly reveal just because I love it, and it'll kind of give you an idea of how how all-consuming and mean the movie's sorrow is. Um, there's a part where there's um, one sister, I want to say her name is Karen, or that just might be the actress's name, I apologize. But there's three sisters, to judge our premise, there's three sisters, and they're going to visit their sister who's dying. And there's a part later on where all three of them are in the same room, and they're arguing with each other, and kind of... Trying to resolve a conflict, let's say. I don't, don't want to okay. get into more than that. And uh, this one sister, who has been incredibly cold the entire movie, once you learn the reasons, you understand why that happens. And her story is actually like the most, the biggest gut punch. But she's incredibly cold. She doesn't seem to have any emotions. She doesn't seem to feel anything. And in this conversation, she finally breaks down and she loses that veneer of coldness. And she's just distraught and in such pain. And her sister goes to comfort her, um, and she says the line, I don't want you to be kind to me, 
which is like, <laughs> oh God, like fuck, that's, that is rough that's, shit. It's pretty rough. But that is a film, like even with all that incredible, like incredibly rough shit, it ends, um, and this is not really a spoiler, this is not like a plot-driven movie, um, and this isn't even part of the plot really. It ends with a memory of all four sisters going out to a swing on their estate and just swinging in the sunshine and laughing and smiling. Just having a grand old time. Yes. And it is the sign from Bergman, like, hey, I just put you through the emotional ringer. I just told you that, hey, maybe, like, you know how bad life is and how much suffering there is in this world? Maybe there's even more than you think. Maybe it's even worse. But, you know, there's still something, there's still moments of joy and there's still moments that are worth remembering. And the scene that most exemplifies this in this movie to me is that scene where Block and Jans and Yof and Mia, um, who are, Block and Jans are the, you know, the crusaders and Yof and Mia are the couple uh, of actors who Mm -hmm. um, have a child as well. And they all sit down in a nice peaceful field and have some strawberries, have some milk. Um, Yof is playing the lute and playing like a nice song for them. And Block says... I shall remember this hour of peace. Um, or, hey, let's actually go one line before. Immediately before that, Block says, to believe is to suffer. It is like loving someone in the dark who never answers, which is rough. And then Block, <laughs> after that, says, I shall remember this hour of peace. The strawberries, the bowl of milk, your face is in the dusk. Mikhail asleep, Yof with his lute. I shall remember our words, and I shall bear this memory between my hands as carefully as a bowl of fresh milk. And this will be a sign and a great content. And that's that's it. That's the whole movie, <laughs> like, in that. Like, hey, this is going to be real bad, but here's this moment that I can carry with me and maybe not have as much fear or maybe have some amount of content in my life. Anyways, which of these movies wins? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I still don't know. Uh, I just want to bring two points. A, I forgot that this is a, this is a perfect pandemic movie. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, because it takes place during the Black Death. That's right. Uh, also, I was thinking of David Sylvian, not David Oh, Bizon. he has a really good ambient album. Yeah, and he also was the lead singer of Japan, which is why I thought of that. Uh, the, the country, not the, uh, the band, not the country. <clears throat> as far as I know, Japan does not have one single singer for the whole country, but hey. That's right. Um, so which one of these movies is better? Um, God, I, I, I think my this opinion is, so is pretty hard. clear, unfortunately. I think, I think you're leaning Seventh Seal. Yes. And it's, and it's because think... here, here's the argument I'll make, and this is not a fair argument. I'm going to admit that. And it's an argument I will completely contradict myself on later. Um, <laughs> not even, not in this episode, but definitely later in the podcast. Where sure. Yojimbo is basically a perfect spaghetti western and uh-huh. has an incredibly performance and is with like the most charismatic guy that's ever lived, maybe. And no part of it I would want to excise. It is so deeply entertaining. However... However, the seventh seal, like, like, like Yojimbo isn't really about a theme. You could find things in there. Sure. But that's not really the point of it. Um, it's to be fun and to have fun. And those are not bad things. <laughs> but the seventh seal is the second greatest expression of, um, what do you call it? Bergman's entire guiding philosophy, in my view, at least his philosophy towards God. And it is a movie of like such great spiritual depth and revelation and beauty and ecstasy and despair that I can't I can't supersede entertainment over that. 
Whereas I 100% can. Yes. And I'm um, sure and later in the just, podcast, I will be like, no, this movie's more entertaining. I want to do that instead of the instead of the smart, good movie. But, you know, just based on my own history and my own, like, caring about certain themes, this is the movie that I would I was always going to go with, you know. And given my my semi-well-known question mark proclivity towards um, towards sort of more sort of action fair towards uh, well action fair in general and Akira Kurosawa in particular um, I was always going to lean towards um, Yojimbo towards Yojimbo because I think it could pull interesting double duty it is this I think in terms of raw entertainment this one kind of edges it out over Seventh Seal and I mean, sure, it's not as thematically rich as the Seventh Seal, but I think it's like a really good calc for uh, feudalism, capitalism, um, uh, the community, uh, g- gang warfare. It, there's it's there's a lot of shit in there, and I, I really like movies that are um, that are seemingly about a uh, little but talk about a lot. And also, I really liked everyone's performance in uh, in Seven the Seal, but none of them can touch Toshiro Mifune. I would agree with that. And here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to say: is I loved both these movies, so I would not be angry with either of them moving forward. And we already had a Ingmar Bergman film about the Silence of God move forward in this podcast. So okay. I would rather represent Yojimbo That's than right. get a second That's one right. of those. Winterlight moved round. on, right? Yes, Winterlight moved on. Unfortunately, next time I face his Raging Bull, and if you disagree with Winterlight, it immediately mo- it immediately loses. So, oh, that's going to be a contentious episode. That, Stay tuned. <laughs> I'm going to get so mad. I'm going to quit the podcast after that. No, I'll be I'll be a good person. I'll finish this out. But um, as way of ending, uh, like say, okay, Yojimbo moves forward, but I want Cause, to because this is. Because, yeah, this is like a stalemate. Yes. Um, and I don't know if you want to use one of our vetoes on this because... because, no, like, I love both these movies. So it feels so kind of silly. So you're willing to concede... Uh, you're willing to concede Seventh Seal because Winterlight already moved on. Yes, it is a contextual concession. Uh, I'll take it, you know. <laughs> I, I I mean, I think this movie is a masterpiece and deserves to go on, you know. I mean, I mean the same is true for Seventh, uh, for seventh Seal, but I... Because both these... Not only are they both... They're, they're both sort of rightfully iconic... And it's like, yeah, either one of these could have won, but I'm glad that mine won. <laughs> okay. If only because, if only because you kind of stepped aside. Yeah. Um, and as a so way, congratulations, of, Yojimbo. Yes. Congratulations, Seven Seal. And as way as closing this, closing this out, um, I would like to, or closing this segment out, I would like to say one last little bit of dialogue from the Seven Seal that I love. Sure. Um, which is very early on, uh, Block Squire, which is Yon's. Goes to ask directions from a guy, and when he looks, you know, he like puts his hand on his shoulder and tries to like turn him. He realizes he's dead. There's just like empty eye sockets. Oh, and it's a good shock moment. Yes, and he goes back to um, Block, and Block says, "Did he show you the way?" And Yon says, "Not exactly." And Block says, well, <laughs> "Well, what did he say?" And Yon says, "Nothing really." And Block says, "Was he mute?" And then Yon says, "No, my lord, he was most eloquent." Which is a good show of the dark humor in the Seventh Seal, and it's very funny. Um, Gunnar Bjornstrand should have been a uh, comedian. He's very funny, in my opinion. But we have some other movies to talk about. We've got two other movies, and, and I only have a clock. half hour before I have to actually end this podcast. And we've already talked for so over. So we're going to have to. So 
We're gonna have to keep this. Uh, we have to keep this bright and tight. Yes. So our next matchup, uh, the 15 seed, the 15th greatest film ever made, according to the uh, to the IMDb Intelligentsia or whatever. The Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers, released in 2002, uh, directed by Peter Jackson, written by Peter Jackson, uh, Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and Stephen Sinclair, based on The Two Towers by J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, starring all of our favorite friends from the first one. So Elijah Wood, Ian McKellen, Liv Tyler, Viggo Mortensen, Sean Astin, Kate Blanchett, da 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 You know who's in this fucking movie. Uh, you could say that it was a box office hit. $94 million budget. $951 million box office take. Christ. Yeah. And the, you could say that those Lord of the Ring movies were uh, fucking a uh, international phenomenon. And they a, went... A cultural uh, touchstone, the, even. Cultural touchstone, even. For generations, if we go back to like the books, and uh, two for six at the Academy Awards, winning for best visual effects and best sound editing, versus the two hundred and forty-two seed, uh, Before Sunset, uh, released in two thousand and four, directed by Richard Linklater, aka Enemy of the Podcast, Richard Linklater, <laughs> Enemy of half of the podcast. Um, yeah, not my enemy. Jesus Christ. Uh, written by Richard Linklater, Ethan Hawke, and Julie Delpy. Uh, based on a story by Richard Linklater and Kim Krizian, uh, starring Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. Um, $2.7 million budget, $16 million take. Uh, very sort of well-received. Uh, and yeah. uh, zero for one at the Academy Awards, uh, losing the adapted best, adapt- best adapted screenplay. Uh, and it lost to uh, Sideways. Huh. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I have but the, but that, you know the best fine. thing about this movie? 80 minutes. Yes, it is is nice and quick. And you know, I don't I don't want to shoot my low before we actually talk about it. So let's talk about Lord of the Rings. Let's talk about Lord of the Rings. Now, dear uh, dear listener, you may have remembered that when we did Return of the King for this uh for this show, I watched uh I had not seen any of these uh any of these movies, uh, any of the Lord of the Rings movies before this podcast. So luckily the first one came first, so I watched that. And then we did uh, Return of the King, so I decided to watch Two Towers, then Return of the King. Because you actually wanted to know what the fuck was going on. Uh, that's part of it. I, I wanted to have the uh, I wanted to have the sort of sequential experience, as it were. Now, uh, problem with that is that uh, the three uh, Return of the Kings is a while back, so my memory of uh, Lord of the Rings Two is going to be a little foggy. But I fe- do feel safe in saying still, this was my favorite of the trilogy. And that's how I used to feel too. Rewatching it, oh. I do not feel that way anymore. Um, I have some issues with it, let's say. Oh, really? Okay. Because I tend, I, I tend to go for the second movie in trilogies just because there's not the shoe leather of the first. And there's not the sort of obsessive tying of, not, tying of bows of the third. I like, a, I like a second entry in a franchise. Here's what else, uh, here's what I think a good structure for this discussion. I will go over the things I had an issue with this time, and then I want to hear you tell me why you loved it so much. I have a good idea. I mean, it's, I still liked it. It wasn't at all a bad okay. way for me. But um, there's a couple like big issues I have with it. Number one okay. is I watched the extended cut, and <laughs> I watched that of all these movies, by the way. The extended cut of this is, is four hours, and... It is the one that groans the most under the weight of the extended cut, which isn't exactly the fault of the movie, 
But, you know, it's the fault of the version I watched. And it's the version I've always watched. So it's not even really that much of a difference to me. I mean, besides the time I thought in theaters, it's different, obviously. But, like, in general, my canonical version is the extended cut. So, but it's the one that that, that sags most most under that. Especially, I love parts of the Battle at Helm's Deep. It also is about an hour too long. That thing fucking just goes and goes and goes. And I'm like, bruh, I get it. You don't have to keep going with this. And you don't also have to include this weird slapstick comedy between Gimli and Legolas. Oh, I love the slapstick comedy shit. That's the Peter Jackson shit. uh, I I don't mind that in like the non-battle scenes when I'm supposed to be caring about whether people live or die. Like the like like when he says like we dwarves we dwarves are natural sprinters that's a fine line I love it into it but when they're just joshing with each other like uh, while they're killing people and other people are dying around them it's a little bit more jarring uh, but that's one of the big issues I have with it the other one is that at this point in my life I am fed up with Gollum I don't want okay. any more Gollum. Uh, or Smeagol, both of them, I'm good. It was very innovative when it happened, obviously. Although now, as a now the time has gone on, and other movies have happened, I would actually say that um, Andy Serkis wasn't as good of a mocap performer as he is now. When you look at something like uh, the Planet of the Apes movies, in which I think he is genuinely like an in- an incredible actor. Like I think here's my really weird opinion. Is that I think that he should have been nominated for Best Actor for War of the Planet of the Apes. You're not the first in person I've heard say that. The other one is Ross Burks, right? Uh, no, I saw like just some people around awards time that season uh, that year go like, you know who shouldn't be slept on is Andy Serkis. Yeah, he's he's generally incredible in those films. Whereas Gollum, I feel like is, I I get I get why it works in the film and I get why it's there in the film and it's played the way it is, but I think partially this might be a cultural thing where i've had so many years of parodies of Gollum and people doing the Gollum voice that i'm like Ugh, this motherfucker again um and also i don't like that he's mean to my to my boy sam uh, my, yeah well, my, know. my beautiful baby boy um, i mean sam is also a fool you know yes but sam is a pure of heart and and wonderful and him and frodo's wonderful gay relationship should have should just be perfect and pure forever. But um, no, like I, free, of, I free, free of conflict. Yes, that's that's how movies should be. There should be no conflict in them. But um, yeah, so I, I didn't really love those parts in this watch of them. Uh, and what's the best way to say this? I think the interesting thing about this one specifically is that I remember pretty well what happens in Fellowship. I also remember pretty well what happens in Return of the King. Two Towers excuse me, is kind of a lot of stuff that I know happens at some point. But if you asked me like a month ago, hey, when does the fall of Isengard happen? I'd be like, uh, in need, in either two or three, there's no, like, like, I guess it's less memorable in a weird way to me. Like the, the structure of the story sags in the middle in general. I felt that way about the books as well um, without the strong bookends of it. It feels like it's like, oh, yeah, there's things happening here. Most of them aren't that important for me to know about. Like, I don't have to actually understand the political machinations of uh, the world of men in this film. It doesn't actually matter for me to know. So it kind of just ends up being a little bit of a soup in the middle. But 
given all those things I've said, and I do still like this movie quite a bit, by the way. I, I It sounds like I'm very down on it. I still like this movie quite a bit. There's a reason I watched the extended version, because I wanted to like have some more time in it. Um, I want to hear from you why this is your favorite of the three. So I want to address your points. Okay. Uh, um, And I think a lot of them are problems linked to... Um, I guess not necessarily... Yeah, over-familiarity. I have seen Lord of the Rings Two Towers one time. Uh, and uh, so whenever they, so when these movies were new in the early 2000s, I had no stake in them. They completely passed me by. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't know what you're plugged into, but I'm not plugged into stuff culturally where I get a lot of Gollum voices. <laughs> uh, you know, life. It's, uh, it just happens all <laughs> the world. I don't hang out with a bunch of fucking nerds. Oh, okay. Sure you don't, Derek. When you go to, to, to the Magic the Gathering store, there's no nerds there. Yeah, no nerds. They, I, I hear it's zero just, Gollum just voices. Just cool chads. Just cool people. Cool people who fuck a lot. I felt, anyway. like, real quick, side note. <laughs> I felt like such a chad the other night because, so? Um, so I um, was hanging out with a person and uh-huh. that's part of it. That's hanging out with a person is what chads do. Um, sure. <laughs> but like um, I basically spent the whole night um, making potato soup with them and then making out and doing other adult things with them. And then I, I, not, not, I, I want to be delicate. And I check Twitter at midnight, and everyone's talking about shit I have no idea, clue what they're fucking talking about. It's some video game shit. Apparently, I found out the next day that AOC had streamed some video games. Whatever. If she, if she wants to do that, fine. Um, but yeah. everyone was making, like, all these jokes about this stream. I had no context for any of them. I had no clue what was going on. And I was like, you fucking nerds, go get laid. Nerd shit. Nerd shit. Um, and I felt like a real Chad in that moment. And that was the coolest I've ever been. Was so when you say you were doing potatoes. <laughs> so when you say you were doing some adult shit, were you like like balancing checkbooks and drinking wine? Yeah, balancing checkbooks. Um, really watching uh God, what's an adult movie? I can't think of any right now. What's Unfaithful with Richard Gere. <laughs> <laughs> I that's a great example, Derek. Um, I really like that <laughs> example quite a bit. It's like either that or like uh, stepmom. Featuring Julia Roberts. Uh, I, yeah, Julia Roberts is definitely an, an, a movie for adults. Yeah, White Oleander with Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh, hell yeah. Um, Ordinary People. That's an, Yeah, it's perfect. Which is a great film, by the way. People We're just naming it. a bunch of different uh, different kind of middlebrow movies. Um, yeah, um, uh, that's, so we were engaging we're, in, oh, in yeah, so, of that. Uh, but yes, you were talking about being a Chad and not hanging around with nerds. Yes, overexposure. So the, the Gollum problem I did not have. I still think Andy Serkis' performance is uh, is good. It's very interesting, and it's 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 one of those things where like I still mocap. I don't watch a ton of movies with mocap, and it's still this thing of like, oh, that's a person, but like digitized. So that's I mean, still kind of novel to me. You, I feel like you probably watch more movies with mocap than you think about. Probably, but it's still like Gollum specifically is like no, this is a performance by a person. Maybe it's because it's Andy Serkis, yeah. aka the greatest mocap actor of all time. Certainly. Um, so that so that's He's one thing. No Benedict uh, Cumberbatch. Sure. Is. I never I never saw those <laughs> fucking movies. I, I'm never going to. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me. I'm but still the, sad I didn't desol- see those in 48 FPS. But the Desolation of Smaug. Mm. Um, I want also, more I people watched- to experiment with high FPS. Is my opinion. I think we might have literally talked about this last last time we recorded, but I really want to see Billy Flynn's ha- long halftime walk in the actual intended 
FPS changes. I think that'd be really, yeah, really I'm cool. About to take a fucking, I'm about to take a fucking long halftime walk out of this podcast. I'm not. That was a joke. Great stuff. Love it. <laughs> um, I have only watched the theatrical versions of these films, so they don't really sag to me. I mean, they sag in the way that two and a half hour long fantasy films sag, but that's not unique to Two Towers. But to be fair, I think like weirdly enough, the extended editions work better when you watch all three of them in a row. Whereas I feel the theatrical versions work better if you're just watching one of them. Because if you're watching all three of them in a row, it's like, okay, I'm sitting down to watch this epic. I'm cool with the diversions. I'm cool with all the stuff that doesn't actually matter, but I still want to see. I am doing this for the experience of watching all these together. And in that case, the the length and the extra detail and the extra world building makes it feel more complete. Whereas if you're just sitting down to watch one of these guys, it's, like I said, it, it sags a little bit. It's a lot like if you... This is going to be a reference no one knows about. If you watch The Tenth Kingdom and you only watched um, like the first little bit where John Lyriquette gets like the magical like thing and you watch the middle part where like... <laughs> John Lyriquette! <laughs> then you watch the middle part where like there's a wolf and he's horny. Then you watch the end part where um, I think Dame Judi Dench plays like Snow White's mother... And it's like really sad and dramatic and there's like implications of child abuse. It's really weird. Um, if you watch all the three of those separately, I feel like they'd be weaker pieces than if you put them all together <laughs> into the saga of the Tenth Kingdom, which is a reference that no one besides me and my mom cares about. But hey. I don't know what the fuck that is. The Tenth Kingdom is, um, it was a miniseries. Um, I believe aired on like ABS or CBC. <laughs> That's... ABS? <laughs> I, meant, and I meant ABC and... CBS and it was actually NBC okay. so I was wrong in all the ways I could be um, but it's about like the 10th kingdom is Manhattan or New York City and the whole idea is that like um, some some magical people accidentally get out into New York City and they bring back some New Yorkers with them to the magical world and that sounds a hell, that sounds a hell of a lot like another show on ABC that has like princesses and shit in it yes but this came way before it this was in 2000 2000- <laughs> The end. 2000. Um, and <laughs> 2000, the end. Yes, 2000. <laughs> and um, it's, there's a character called Wolf who is, I'm pretty sure, here's, here's fun details about me, is that I'm pretty sure Wolf is the reason I'm a furry now. Because um, he was... <laughs> Dog, we have 10 minutes. <laughs> it's fine. I'll just text him saying, hey, it's going to be like 15 minutes late, whatever. Okay. Um, and, and they're like a half wolf guy who just gets called wolf and there's a part in the movie where him is John Larroquette? No. <laughs> it's Scott Cohen. Scott Cohen. Um Scott Cohen. Who was also in I've literally no idea. He was in Perfect Murder Perfect Town. He was Max Medina in Gilmore Girls. I don't know any of these things. I don't know any of these things. Yeah. Um, Kissing Jessica Stein? Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't really matter. Um but um, he is Wolf, and there, him and Kimberly Williams, who is Virginia Lewis, who is John Larroquette's daughter. Kimberly Williams, you will know, she is in Father of the Bride, most important films of all time. <laughs> Father of the Bride's a damn good film, is my opinion. Um, <laughs> there's a really good part. I'm, okay, pause. I'm not going to talk about Father of the Bride. I'm too many layers deep. Tenth Kingdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to pop the stack, yes. something fierce. Um, Kimberly Williams um, and Scott Cohen... Uh, you know, this normal city girl and the half-wolf, they clearly have it on for each other. Um, they're clearly getting horny for each other. And there's one part that 
for some reason, this is stuck in my head forever. And I'll remember it until I die. Um, which there's a part where they're like sitting in a tree, like hiding from people, or maybe they're like camping. I don't remember. It doesn't really matter. And the wolf is basically like, you can like pet me. And cause he has like wolf ears and he has like wolf tail, <laughs> but the, his face is a person face and he stands up and he has like person skin everywhere else. And she starts petting him and she starts against the grain. He's like, no, like, ouch, you got to do it the other way. And then she does it. And he basically like, looks like he's coming. And that's, the scene and then the fucking bell went off in Isabel's head. <laughs> and that scene is stuck in my head forever. Um, but yeah, John Larroquette is like a janitor and who is the father of Virginia Lewis, and he's like really greedy and cowardly, and he gets a magical oh god, what is it? what magical thing does he get? Um a golden retriever no, no, he gets turned into a golden retriever. Shit. No, Prince he gets Wendell. A golden gets gavel from a- Harry Anderson. Thanks. It's Night Corp. <laughs> I wish. That'd be so wonderful. Um Let's see. New magical. Oh, hold on. I, I gotta look this up. Give me just a second. <laughs> Take all the seconds you need. Oh, this is a wild one. The fans are gonna love this. Um, huh. Every oh, episode that gets more digressive. Okay. Remembered it. Um, Tony, who is John Larroquette, gets given six wishes, and one of them he uses to get like rich. One of them he uses, I think, to get laid. One of them he uses to get like drunk or something. I don't remember. But you know, it's the kind of thing where like, oh, they're all gonna turn back on you. And um, Wendell, who is the prince of one of the in the fourth kingdom, uh, gets turned into a golden retriever, which is how both of the New Yorkers get transported into the place because they follow the golden retriever into a magic mirror. Um, <laughs> and eventually, the, the, to sum up, eventually Virginia meets the ghost of Snow White, um, who reveals that Virginia like is a child of these kingdoms. And it's kind of like, you know, the chosen one, like all those kind of things do. Yeah, it's real good. People should watch it. Um, I actually don't know whether it's good or not. Ed O'Neill's a troll king in it. He's real good in that. Um, there's, there's there's trolls in general. Like the trolls are kind of uh, uh, like troll siblings who have pratfalls and who do goofy stuff. Um, and they're played by Hugh O'Gorman, Don Lewis, and Jeremy Burkett. Um, they do really well. Uh, I don't know what else to say about this movie. I don't even know what or this miniseries. I oh yes, the whole point of this originally was if you chop out the different episodes of it and try to watch them individually, they're less good. Watch all of the Tenth Kingdom at once. It is more than worth your time. Um, it might not be. Don't like hold me on that. But um, if you just watch them all at once, it will only last you. Hold on, I'm doing some math real quick. Uh, eight hours. So it's shorter than Shoah. <laughs> a glowing recommendation from Isabella. <laughs> Anyways, continue with the things you liked about this, about the, the oh, two towers. Dog, that sounded like a six-year-old's fever dream. <sighs> I, as you talk, by the way, I'm texting this person that I'm supposed to talk to to be like, hey, I just had to talk about the Tenth Kingdom for a bit. But anyways, you go. <laughs> just give me the fucking, just give me the fucking chicken noodle soup and Robitussin. Let me try to catch some Z's <laughs> between these fairy tales that you're reading to me. Oh my god. Okay. The last the last thing that I'm going to hit on for why I like Two Towers so much is that I think it's the most phantasmagorical of the trilogy. And I like me a phantasmagorical fantasy film. Huh. Interesting. Uh, I really I really like also the sort of subplot with the Ents, because I think uh Marion Pippin I like the Marion Pippin arc that they get in this movie. But in addition to like the usual sort of you know D and D like like maxim uh, you know maximalist D and D shit that the Lord of the Rings movies does, 
Um, yeah, I agree. And I think that's, those are some of the sources of the comedy that I like most is both that I think they're, they're kind of the funniest actors in the thing. Um, and they have the best setting for a lot of that. I think Treebeard is a very good straight man to their ridiculousness. Uh-huh. I would agree. <laughs> we still have one whole movie to talk about. Yeah. Um, and it's a movie I got opinions about. Oh, I bet you do. So Two Towers going up against uh, the little movie that could. Before Sunset, which is the second film in the Richard Linklater, Ethan Hawke, Julie Delpy, Before trilogy. We've already discussed uh, Before Sunrise, which, if you recall, dear listener, is a movie that I quite liked. Uh, I think I watched well past the time where it was going to be kind of a canon movie for me, but I still very much liked because I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of powerless against Richard Linklater's very specific brand of bro volubility. I just like, I really just like the way he writes. He's not like a dazzling filmmaker in terms of, uh, in terms of like technique. I like his ideas about film and time. We've talked about this, but I also just really like the way he writes. I like the, <laughs> I like the sound of his bullshit basically. Uh, so if you're unfamiliar, uh, this movie, uh, happens nine years after the events of Before, uh, Before Sunrise, where, uh, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy spend a night together in Vienna. Now, nine years later, Ethan Hawke is a famous writer, has written about his experience in, uh, his experience with Julie Delpy in, uh, in Vienna, and now is a big shot writer, and is in Paris to promote his book. And who should appear at the fucking bookstore but uh, Julie Delphi, and they get to spend a nice afternoon together. And really, that's the movie. It's 80 minutes of them just basically catching up and shooting the shit, but with the sort of... With the weight of history on them. Not just the weight of history, but the weight of... What the fuck are the odds that these people were going to get together again? And will anything happen this time? More than just sort of um, polite banter between people who know each other. Now, I found this movie just about as good as I found, uh, like, slightly better in some ways than uh, Before Sunrise. Uh, it's it's <laughs> it's hard to say that a movie, movie has kind of, like, a looser... This movie has higher emotional stakes to me, because, like, I like the kind of, like... I, I like the hangout vibe of uh, Before Sunrise, but this movie has, like, stakes now. Yes, things happen in it. Things happen in it, and like you just said, there's the weight of history behind it. And again, this is again, this is another one of those Linklater missives that I just really like the way he writes. I like the way that he writes these characters. I like the way that Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy sort of inhabit these characters. They feel it's easy for them to feel lived in because nine years is the amount of time that passed more or less between the two movies. I mean, it's an easy trick. It requires a kind of like dedication. But Linklater seems like the type to be dedicated in that specific way. And then he would continue to, to do that with uh, Before Midnight, a movie that's so sad, I haven't watched yet. I know it's sad, and that's enough to keep me away. <laughs> I will inevitably watch it because I want to see the conclusion to this trilogy. Um, but yeah, I thought this was, uh, this was uh, a banger. 80 minutes, and it does exactly what you needed to. And it's... I don't know it's it, it's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful movie of sort of collected moments a lot in the same way that I thought before sun, uh, sunrise was uh but like you put it perfectly Isabel with the weight of history with the weight of like like what is 
Like, what happens when something clearly needs to happen, but everything gets in the way for it not to? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. So, I know the answer to this, but I'm going to set it up anyway. What did you think about this movie? So, for those who aren't aware, I fucking hate Richard Linklater. Um, a hater! I, I'm a, a hater! I'm a hater. I think that Days and Confused is terrible. I think Everybody Wants Some Great was movie. the worst movie that came out that year. I think that awesome Waking movie. Life is insufferable. That Slacker is it's also insufferable. <laughs> um, awesome movie. The only one I like, kind of like um, is like School of Rock. And that's mostly because awesome it doesn't movie. really feel like a Linklater movie. It's more just like, hey, here's Jack Black doing some wacky stuff. Cool. Love it. It's one of the most jovial films I've ever seen. <laughs> sure. Why not? I guess. Um, oh, oh, I almost forgot to say, Boyhood is fucking terrible. Um, like, awesome movie. what a shit Best movie film. of the year. Uh, that is a film that, like, oh, it was shut up for 12 years. Or whatever it took. Yeah. And that is such a bullshit I mean, he... gimmick. And it doesn't work. And it's a complete failure of a movie. So. I mean, this is clearly the precedent for this gimmick. Yeah. And that that's. Okay. Here's the problem. The gimmick. We're not going to talk about Boyhood. We're not going to. Okay, you're right. Pause me. I'm not. I'm, you're pausing me on that. I'm not actually going to get into why I hate everything about Boyhood. And that was all to say that before Sunset might be my favorite movie I saw this year. Yeah, it's, it's so we got her, folks. fucking good. It is like it's really good. I, like when I first watched it, I was like, "Wow, I liked that. I liked a Richard Linklater film." And then like I just kept thinking about it and bring and thinking about it over and over to the point where it's so charming. Uh, it, to the point where I was telling the plot of this movie to people who I met um, or who I was hanging out with. Like I, funny enough, the person who I was hanging out with the other night, I basically described the entire plot of Before Sunset to her when we hung out after that. Um, And she actually got kind of teary-eyed about it. She was like, oh my gosh, that sounds like amazing. And this is coming from someone who thought Before Sunrise was no great shakes. It was, I think the way I described it um, was I was like, I get finally why people kind why people like Richard Linklater. I didn't, at least I didn't love it, but I was like, this is fine. There's nothing explicitly wrong. This will get this. you there. And before sunset now has way boosted that movie in my mind in the past. And just the more I think about before sunset, the more it keeps raising in my estimation. I'm so excited to watch before midnight. Like I literally, you're going to love that. Fucking I'm going to fucking adore that movie. Um, and I went from a month ago thinking that Richard Linklater was maybe the worst, like, popularly acclaimed director I knew about. Insanity. Fucking terrible. And then, all of a sudden, like, I, uh, yesterday, I unfortunately couldn't because of budgeting restrictions. But um, when the Criterion had their half-off sale, my immediate thought was, I have to get the Before Trilogy. Like, I have to. That's the thing I have to get next. Um, And it's because. A couple different reasons. Number one is that I think the fact that for me, uh, we won't get into why this is different in Boyhood because that would be a whole different podcast. But in bef- between Before Sunrise and Before Sunset, that gap in time, that physical gap in time that actually happened is so rich and adds so much to what the film does and what the film is trying to do. Um, the fact that you can, and usually I wouldn't be a fan in a movie like this of flashbacks, um, where it's like, Hey, do you remember the first filmy? I'm like, yeah, I remember the fucking first movie. That's usually what I would think. But the reason I like them in this is it's like, Hey, 
Remember how these people used to look younger? Literally, you can see that time has passed. You can see that they're older people yeah, now. Yeah, this was a decade ago. Yeah, um, and I think that's great. And such a good use of that, of like actually good use of flashbacks to really remind you, oh shit, yeah, like literal time has passed. It's not just a movie that says, oh, this happened 10 years ago. It's a movie that shows you it happened 10 years ago because it literally did. So that's wonderful. And I think that the way that, like you talked about, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delphi inhabiting these characters. I think that's 100% true. They feel like in the first film, maybe they felt to me a little bit, a little bit artificial. Like they were trying to create a character. Um, Now I'm looking back on it as like, oh, that's what you do when you're like 21 or 22. You create a version of yourself. 100% what you do when you're in your early 20s. And present that as yourself to other people. Whereas by Before Sunset... These people are in their mid to late thirties. They like, what's the best way to say this? They got lives. They have, they have actual lives. They don't have to put on a show anymore. Although they do a little bit for each other. They put on a show for each other. That's right. Yes. And one of the best parts about it is that you can tell because you know these characters and you've seen them in the previous movie and you know how they react to things. You can tell when they're not telling the truth or not telling the entire truth. And you can tell the other person can tell, which is great. Uh, it's good acting. Like, like there's a part, if acting, like very, if acting is reacting. Yeah. Uh, like there's a part early on where um, I think I want to say it's, um, yes, that's what it is. Uh, Celine says to like, basically ask Jesse, like, did you actually show up to that place we were said we were going to show up to like all these years ago? And he's like, no, like, no, of course not. And they both like have a laugh And like about a it. herb, he says no. Yeah. And, and like, um, you know, as soon as he says it, that he 100% did. And eventually that comes out. And then she apologizes and she's like, oh, fuck. Like, I maybe didn't think you were going to. And I was dreading this answer because I wanted you to actually truthfully tell me no. So I wouldn't feel guilty. And you can tell the entire time they're talking. It starts out very surface level. Where they're just talking about like, oh, like how are things like how you pick up with an old with an old friend you haven't seen for a very long time. It's like, how is work going? How how are your kids? How all that kind of stuff. And just those layers of artificiality get peeled back more and more as you go through the film until there's that limo scene, which is just devastating. And yeah, it's pretty intense. Um, Julie Delphi's whole whole bit there. Yeah, where basically Julie Delphi is like, I'm furious at you for coming here and reminding me that like there was this thing I wanted and that I failed to get, and that I have this. Like regret. you ruined the concept of romance for me. It's like yes. that's that's a messed up thing to say to someone. Yeah, and I think the reason that this one resonated with me so well is because, like. If you've ever had regrets that you know you can't actually resolve, this is a great movie for you to watch to be devastated because that's a big part of the film is both of them going, fuck, why didn't we meet up? Why didn't we do this thing? Because... Why didn't we exchange numbers? Yes. Um, and he talks, like Ethan Hawke's character, Jesse, talks about the fact that he has a wife now and they had a kid together, but it feels like he did that because it was obligatory. And now he basically, like, I think the way he describes it, this is going to be slightly paraphrasing, but he's like, it's like I run a daycare with someone I knew in high school, which is like, holy shit, man. <laughs> like, yeah, that's that's rough. Yeah, it's like and the second you say that the second he says that it's like the charade that is my life is just is just there. Yeah, it's just like all the facade just melts and it's like, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. And 
Um, there's a wonderful early part where she says she doesn't remember them having sex, which he says happens in the book. And she's like, oh, like that happened in your book, but it didn't actually happen in real life. And he's like, of course it did. Don't you remember it? And clearly she's trying to not acknowledge certain things. And then eventually she, right. she finally comes out and says, of course I remember it. Of course I remember like every single part of this. I don't want to fucking talk about this. I don't want these memories to come up anymore. It's like, this is not what I expected to happen when I fucking woke up today. Yeah. And then it has maybe my favorite ending scene I've seen. I, I don't want to say that as like a definitive because there's so many great ending scenes in cinema. But boy, howdy, this is like up there, like for me. Because for people who haven't seen the film, they, you know, they walk around um, Vienna for a little bit. Or Paris. Well, they walk Paris, Paris, yes, because it was Vienna for the past film. Um, so they walk around Paris for a little bit. And then um, they get into that limo to theoretically like, drive back to her place so she can get dropped off. And he goes to the airport after that. He goes to the airport. Yeah. yeah. And they have this huge, like basically a fight in the car about how angry she is that he's made her bring all these feelings to the surface. These feelings that she puts so much effort into suppressing. And um, he's basically like, let me just walk you up to your apartment. Like, let me just do that. And they get to her. I will say this. Yes. Best scene of someone walking up to someone else's apartment I've seen in a good long time. Yes. Definitely. It is just so thick with tension. No one says a fucking word. And it's just like, what? This is like, we are crossing a threshold. There's no turning back from this. Yes. It's like, this is happening. This is happening. Um, and... The entire time, like, not the entire time, but, like, she's mentioned a couple times during the movie that she plays music. And she, like, writes music. And so they're oh, outside. She plays him a fucking song. So, so she, um, what do you call it? They're outside her apartment. And he's like, can I just come up and, like, hear you play a song for me? And then I'll go. And then I'll, like, I'll leave and I'll go to the to the airport. Um, because the entire time she's like, you have to go. Like, you're supposed to, you're going to miss your flight. All that kind of stuff. And then, um, don't spoil it, Derek. Um, so they get to the <laughs> place and she plays... Um, Another great detail I love is that she's like, oh, I, here's this one song about like this thing. And here's another song about this thing. And then there's like a third song. And she doesn't really say what it's about. So clearly he asked for the third song because she knows he's going to ask for the third song. And the third song is about their night together. It should be cheesy. It sounds cheesy probably as I'm saying it. But it's like, oh, oh, my God, this is incredible. And then um, she's like, here, you have this cup of tea. Then you can get going. And as he's having the as he's having the cup of tea, and you can tell they're constantly postponing it because they don't want to actually leave each other. And he's having the cup of tea, and he puts on a Nina Simone record, and she's yeah. she's telling the story about seeing Nina Simone in concert and all the stage banter she did with people, and uh, the final two lines of the film, like she's imitating Nina Simone, and she says, "Baby, you're gonna miss your flight," and then he just looks at her and says, "I know." I know. And it's like, oh my <laughs> god. Like like I It's so It was god so perfect. Oh god. I fucking adore this movie, Derek. It's really good. I adore it so much that it's going to the next fucking round if I have my brothers. I agree. There we go. Richard Linklater, Richard welcome Linklater, to round you got two. Me. You finally got me. David Fincher couldn't do it. But you did, buddy. I would have never expected that, uh, like going into this. Well, like genuinely neither... the largest surprise. Even more than Three Idiots, because like Three Idiots I didn't have any expectations about. Whereas this, I was like, I'm going to hate this. Yeah, my bracket is a busted. <laughs> um, I mean, but I think both of ours are. Uh, yeah. I mean, I would have bet... Do- at, at the beginning of this, I would have bet Dollars and Donuts, LTR, easy. Yes. But, uh, you know, this is the fun of the podcast. This is like the surprises. Yes. I am I'm very glad I was forced to watch Before Sunset, because I never would have watched it on my own. And turns out, you know. Turns out. Holy shit.
Um, so yeah, what do we do with this podcast at the end of it? Well, uh, first of all, let me congratulate our winners, um, uh, Yojimbo, and uh, before sunset, oh, you're that, going to meet each other in the next that round. That sucks. <laughs> God, the second uh, round the of this is going to be a are... fucking nightmare. Oh, geez, you think the second round is going to be bad? Wait till we get to the fourth. So next time, sports fans, we are going to be uh, doing two entirely new uh, matchups, which are going to be... To Kill a Mockingbird versus Gran Torino, oh, and Psycho versus La La Land. Racist movie versus racist movie, and a good movie versus a movie I probably will not like. What if La La Land ends a up being like another one that I love? What if that happens, Derek? I, I would be surprised. Um, La La Land's okay. That's my take on it. Okay. Um, <laughs> not, not, to, not, not, not to step on next week's episode, but I think... Um, People should stop casting Ryan Gosling as a romantic lead and cast him more as a fucking goofball. Yes, he's a great comedian. He's a great. He's a he's a great comic actor. The other guys. That right? sounds like a slight one movie. Yeah, the other guys. Great, like literally, uh, he's like, great wonderful uh, version of that kind of movie. Yeah, it's an awesome movie. It's it's got a Shane Black script and everything. Yeah, I'm actually googling Ryan Gosling because I know there's another one I'm thinking of that I like really always think of. Um, is like oh shit, he's actually really really funny in that. Amazing. Um, unfortunately not First Man, which was awful. Fucking... Uh, I hear people go to bat for that movie. Yeah, they're insane. They can they can eat my dick. Um, the Big Short, I think he's really, really funny in that. I didn't see that. Oh, you should watch... Uh, the Big Short, I'm actually surprised it's not on this list. It's a very middle-brow movie um, that occasionally makes a good point. And actually, here's the, like... Here's the thing they want you to say for the poster that I hate saying. It, t- it taught me more about the 2008 financial crisis. Like I know what tranches are because of that movie, which is shameful. I bet it's a lot of actors I like saying shit that sounds good when said in a movie. Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, it's a it's a good little flick, but um, you know, uh, only God forgives is also a good flick that should be rehabilitated, in my opinion. The movie's all right. The movie's great. Like uh, second best movie by what's his face? Old old fuckface Reffin. Yeah, Nicholas Win- Windings Reffin. Um, yeah, uh, yes, Nicholas, Nicholas Times New Roman. Who I used to adore, and with one movie, he tanked all my respect for him. Uh, Neon Demon? Yes, I think Neon Demon is maybe the worst film of the past decade. Worse like, than Boyhood? Yes, worse than Boyhood. Worse than, wor- even worse than Everybody Wants Some, which is even worse than Boyhood. That's ludicrous. Anyway, we're not, we're not or, talking or, about or this. Maybe, maybe I, I'm sorry, I didn't say the title correctly. Everybody Wants Some? There's no so question was, marks in that. There's no question marks no, in that title. Oh, I thought it was in Tarot Bangs. No, they're just exclamation points. Oh, it's after cares. the Van it's Halen song. It's a shitty movie anyways. It doesn't actually matter. We're all going to die It's awesome. Someday. Don't listen to her. It's great. Now, Bronson, good... Valhalla Rising. That, those are movies. Only those, God Forgives. Those are That's both awesome movies. Those are both awesome movies. Do you ever think uh, about I, um, Kirsten Scott I Thomas have a... in Only God Forgives? Sometimes. Rarely. Hot damn. She's good in that. Also, she's hot in that. But... I, I, still, I still have a lot of Nick Reffin stuff. I think I have like... Pause. I'm not going to say that thing I was just about to say. That would be not appropriate for the podcast. Continue with the thing we were originally talking about. <laughs> can, you, can you say it in confidence and just edit it out? I, I was going to say, I have a thing for mean MILFs. Um, like like <laughs> no, ice that's, cold that's mean not, MILFs. That's not even like top 10 worst Fine. things you've said on this show. Fine, then I'll keep it in. Why not? That dude's not like the most prolific actor. Ryan Gosling? Yeah. The dude takes chances. The guy has like a pretty... Pretty sturdy, if unexceptional, filmography. You know? I mean, 
he's been in like a lot of films the past couple of years. Like 2011, he was in three different movies. 2010, he was in three different movies. Uh, 2012 was just that was one. like a decade ago. But then 23 was in three different movies. 2016 was in two. 2017 was in two. Hasn't worked since then, apparently though. But um, but also here's my not. I'm not going to say much about this because we're already. Oh my god, we're. I was supposed to stop this. <laughs> Um, but, uh, The Believer is a film that, uh, needs more props than it actually gets. I think it's genuinely, like, one of the best films of the 2000s. Um, also, one of my favorite examinations of, uh, spirituality in general, and Judaism in specific, um, that is incredibly complicated and has no easy answers for any of those things. And the ending of that, as well, is incredibly good. It's also an incredibly daring and ballsy film. Like, it's a film... I feel okay like like praising these things because it was directed by a Jewish person. Um, but there's a part in it where um, Ryan Gosling, for those who don't know, it's about Ryan Gosling. He is a neo-Nazi, but he's also Jewish, secretly. And there's a part in it where, long story short, uh, there's a moment and a scene where he does a combination of giving the, like, the Nazi Hail Hitler salute and reciting passages from the Torah which is interesting it's really something and like like that sounds really ex- exploitative when i say it like that i think it's set up incredibly intelligently incredibly like as respectfully as that can be and it's asking a legitimate question um but either way do we do Directed need by to the pl- writer basic instinct too <laughs> fuck when you put it like that it doesn't <laughs> sound too good does it i mean the, but he's also uh, this is uh, mr henry bean we're talking about he's also written other shit like he's written, uh, he wrote the uh, the Lord's Fishburne movie Deep Cover, directed by Bill Gunn. Oh yeah, hooray! Deep Cover. He also wrote yeah, Internal he... Affairs and Venus Rising. What a hero! I mean, uh, I'm sure he's doing pretty well for himself. Yeah, I'm sure. He's um, fine. And he he made exactly one film that I will go to bat for as an incredible piece of work. Are we believe... doing the like thing where we say other stuff now? Yes. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, all right. If you want to get in touch with us. And give us your uh, vegan recipes or uh, Bollywood recommendations or uh, British opinions on the picks or any other of uh, the other shit that we well, asked for. In the tell past. us if these are you going can... too long. Like, I genuinely want to know because the last couple ones have been pretty darn long, which is my fault. I'll be honest. I'm the one who keeps putting us off into these tangents. But also... Middlebrowmadness at gmail.com. <laughs> to be fair, it makes the podcast more interesting for us to do, I think, uh, instead of just talking about the movies. I feel like it's, it's an adventure it's, every time. Yeah, it's a little more zany. Um, and I feel like, hey, that's what people are, are here for. Uh, I, w- I would guess that's true. Um, if you want to get in touch with us specifically, you could reach us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Derek underscore G. Isabel is at Space Jam Fan. We are both on Letterboxd at those same handles. Um, uh, follow all the other podcasts on the Noise Space uh, Podcast Network. Um, I don't know if I have anything else to plug. I don't think I do. That's fine. I feel like that's enough. <laughs> okay. My whole body so, is just uh, dying. Oh, uh, you're telling me. Okay, fucking f- f- say your name so we can end this. Uh, Isabel Arf. And I'm Derek Gada. Have movies, be jolly. Have movies, be jolly. Good night, everyone. Oh, oh boy. Well, you just say good night, <laughs> motherfucker. Oh, yeah. Good night. <laughs>